Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Y'all doing well? Great. We're delighted to have you. If you have not met you before, my name's Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here. We're actually finishing up a little three-week series we've entitled, What in the World is Next? Um, lots of interesting stuff even happening this week in the world scene. And of course, biblically, the next big thing uh, that we're looking at is the second coming of Christ. Our first week that we did this, we talked about what are the events that lead up to that second coming of Christ, which is the tribulation, a seven-year period here on earth, and uh, what that looks like from Revelation 19. Last weekend, we looked at, okay, so after the second coming of Christ, what is yet to come after that? We looked at the kingdom. We looked at the great white throne judgment. We looked at eternity. And this morning, what we're going to deal with, though, is the question of the rapture. Which is one of those uh, one of those issues or thoughts that uh, a lot in the church have different ideas about. So we're going to kind of go into that. All of this is kind of leading us though to our next book study because that's what we love to do. Uh, and we're going to start next weekend. We are starting the Book of Revelation. And the part of it that we'll be taking, and we just love to go, you know, verse by verse, section by section, we're going to be taking the first three chapters here over the course of the next couple months, and we've entitled it Letters from Jesus, because what you have is the revelation of Jesus, first of all, to John, who, by the way, even though he was Jesus' best friend here on earth, now he gets to see him in all his glory which is kind of an incredible passage of Scripture there in Revelation 1. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus writes letters to seven local churches that were existing in that time. That's what we're going to be talking about over the course of the next couple months, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. So we encourage you to come and to uh, be a part of that. But this morning, part three in essence of what in the world is next if you got your bibles we're going to start in first thessalonians chapter four and we're going to be looking at those verses this morning while you're turning there let me give you some background some context to first thessalonians four because as we often say when you study the bible context is king to understand what the author you have to understand the context of what was going on so Paul had, if you remember there in the book of Acts, he had been ministering, again, this is the second journey into the area of Asia Minor, over where Turkey is today, and God just kept closing doors, and then he had the dream, the Macedonian call, right, that vision to go to Macedonia, and that's one of the cool things that we're actually going to kind of trace that part of the trip when we go to Greece here in May, so we'll go see Neapolis, where he landed, and then, of course, that main stop he made, the first one, was in Philippi, and that's where he began to preach the gospel. Many came to faith in Christ, but if you remember, that's also where some incredible persecution started, and Paul and Silas end up in the jail, and they've been beaten with rods, and they're singing and praising God. There's an earthquake. The jailer comes to know the Lord, and then basically they get kicked out of town, and one of the places they went was to Thessalonica, and the interesting thing about Thessalonica, if you go and you read the book of 1 Thessalonians, you read, or actually it's back in the book of Acts, they're only there less than a month. 
just a little over three weekends that they are there to preach the gospel. But even in that short amount of time, many people came to faith in Christ. But then, within the month, the persecution showed up from Philippi, and they left and continued to head further south. Remember, they went to Berea, and then they went to Athens. Ultimately, they went to Corinth. But while they're in Athens, Paul is concerned about all these new believers, right? They hadn't had much time to do much discipleship, much follow-up with them. And so eventually what he does is he sends Timothy and a couple others that were traveling with him to go back to see how they're doing. And the report that Timothy brought back to him was they were doing great. They were thriving. They were going on with the Lord. But they had certain questions, that, you know, just in that short period of time, Paul hadn't been able to deal with. And one of those questions is, what happens if a believer in Jesus dies before Jesus returns? Now, first of all, that tells us a little bit that they're expecting Jesus to return, like, soon, soon, right? And secondly, it, it reminds us that this is, this is that that heart of the church is as we look for his return and yet as he waits what does happen to those who die knowing the lord so paul writes here in chapter four to answer that question so this is let's pick it up in verse 13 but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren and I remember hearing an old pastor once talk about, you know, as you look across the church landscape, there's grace brethren, and there's holy brethren, and there's this brethren, but the biggest group is the ignorant brethren, right? The uninformed brethren. About those who are asleep who have died, so that you will not grieve as, to, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so right there he's talking to christians those who believe even so god will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in jesus so where are the people who have died knowing jesus they're with him Amen. and when jesus comes back he's going to bring them verse 15 for this we say to you by the word of the lord paul says i'm not making this up i got this directly from jesus that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of god and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words so the first question I want to try to answer here today is what is the rapture of the church when we use that expression because a lot of times people even push back on this concept of the church being caught up because they well the word rapture is not even used in scripture well they're in essence correct but in a sense they're wrong so if you look at verse 17 it says those who are alive and remain will be caught up the latin translation of that word caught up which means by the way to be snatched away uh, taken by force is the is where we get the word rapture that's where it comes from that's that's it's a latin word that has this idea of being 
taken away, caught up, taken by force. And so what the rapture is, is this sudden God-caused removal of the church from this world. That's what the rapture is. So what Paul is explaining, when Jesus returns for his church, those who have already died and are with him will come back. He's going to come. He's going to come in the clouds. He's going to stop. Those who are with him are going to come. They are going to be raised. And then we who are alive and remain will then be caught up together with them. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Now for a lot of people, they... They say, well, isn't this the second coming of Christ? And the answer is no, there's differences. First of all, the second coming of Christ, Jesus is coming all the way back to the earth, right? We looked at it, Zechariah 14, we even know where he's going to land. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives, right? That's where his feet are going to touch. In the rapture, he just comes in the clouds. Secondly, uh, when he comes at the second coming, he's coming to set up his kingdom. What he clearly is happening here is he's coming to catch us away, to take us to be with himself. At the second coming, the end where it all ends up is here on earth. Where it ends up here is that we're going to be with him, and where is he? He's in heaven. So they're two different things. I think the first mention of the rapture is actually found in the book of John. You remember Jesus had been with them in the upper room, told them he's going to die. Their hearts are very heavy. He starts out John 14, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In verse 3, he says this, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, we quote that verse all the time. That seems like common knowledge to us. You have to understand that that is a brand new thought that Jesus is introducing. You see, in the Old Testament, it was never about going to heaven. It was never about going to be. It was that ultimately the Messiah would come and set up his kingdom here, and there would be a resurrection of the dead here but it's all on the earth. So for Jesus saying, I'm going to go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me, is an absolutely brand new thought. I think what he's referring to is the rapture. Paul now picks up on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, again, we've got to cover a lot of ground today. I'm going to talk really quickly, but hopefully, uh, if you've got questions, you'll write them down. We'll talk about them later. You can do some more research. But in the New Testament, a mystery describes something that is kind of unique to the church age. You didn't see it in the Old Testament. For instance, Paul tells us uh, in the book of Ephesians that the church itself is a mystery. You didn't see it in the Old Testament that the, the Jews and the Gentiles would come together in one body and be in Christ. It was a mystery, but it's now revealed in the church age. Paul, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm telling you a mystery here that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That had not been seen before. In the Old Testament, what you have in Daniel is that the last day here on earth, the dead will be raised 
into a new life. This idea of we who are alive and remain being changed. It, it just wasn't there. What he's referencing here is this rapture that he explains in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is something that's unique. It's, 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 it's special. It, it, we, you don't see it in the Old Testament, but this is just specifically for the church. So what the rapture is, it's the catching up of, of all believers from the cross until Jesus returns at the rapture, both the dead and the living, who are followers of Christ. So again, let's explain. Today, a believer in Jesus dies. They go into eternity. What happens? Well, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So they go to be with Jesus. When Jesus returns at the rapture, those who have already died and gone to be with him are going to come back. He's going to stop in the clouds. They're all going to come back to the earth. They are going to be resurrected. We who are alive and remain in that moment then are going to be changed. And then we're going to follow them up. And together we are forever going to be with the Lord. All right, so that's what the rapture is. Now, I wish I had more time, right? Because there's always some interesting tidbits here. The question then goes, okay, and the normal thought of most Christians is that, well, the, um, those that are dead will receive their glorified bodies at the resurrection. And I want to push back on that just a little bit. Because I think 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that those who die in Christ get their glorified body at death. He says, for we know that if this house, which is our tabernacle, is torn down, that we have a building of God that's not made with hands, that's eternal in the heavens. In fact, he even says, we don't want to be unclothed, but we just want to be clothed with what, what is... Uh, which is immortal, which is going to live forever. I think all the evidence actually points to it. I mean, you, you look at the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? Lazarus, hey, go stick your finger in the water. Come cool my tongue. I think as a believer, you get your eternal body at death. So you're not just some spirit floating around. I think that's what we'll see in the book of Revelation. That seems to be the sense of what's going on. But it doesn't become the resurrected body until it goes through the process of resurrection. And so that as they come with Jesus, now they go through that process or that, that declaring victory of Jesus' victory over death and all his enemies of the resurrection. And now that glorified body becomes the resurrected body because it's now gone through that process. And we who are alive and remain, oh, by the way, get our glorified body that is now caught up and is part of that first resurrection that we explained last week. So that's the rapture. Does that make sense to everybody? Right? Okay. So the question now is, when does the rapture take place? And there are a zillion different views about this. Um, three main ones. And they're all kind of tied in relation to the seven years of tribulation. So there's the pre-tribulation, that this happens before the tribulation. And I think that all Christians want to have that view, right? Who wants to go through the tribulation? 
There's another group that says, no, it, it happens at that midpoint of the tribulation. It's also known as the pre-wrath view. That as you look at the, and we'll, we'll get into this in the book of Revelation, that the seven years of tribulation is actually tied into two pieces. Jesus tells us that at that mid-mark, that the last three and a half years, he even goes, it, it is even greater tribulation. So this is the, the real wrath that God is being poured out. Uh, a lot of times what they look at is there are two prophets of God that prophesied during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And remember, nobody can kill them. But at the three and a half year mark, the beast, the Antichrist, is able to kill them. And they lay in the streets of Jerusalem. But on the third day, they're raised up and then they're called up into heaven. And so they see that as the rapture. The third view then is the post-tribulation. So it's right at the end as so that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are all kind of a part of the same thing. And so this happens as Jesus is descending uh, from heaven in Revelation chapter 19 and we're caught up and then we end up just, it's a very short trip. By the way, you go up and then you come right back. I, I don't quite get that part, but, but that's, that's the idea of it. Now, let me say this. Um, there is not one verse in scripture that, that clearly states a lot of this is how you see the evidence so what I would say is there's not one inarguable passage of scripture and quite honestly with believers it doesn't matter because we just like to argue right okay and theologically and big picture when it happens is not all that important now i feel pretty strongly about my position you might yours that's great but this is not an issue that should divide christians right i mean when it happens you you'll see i'm right and we'll be all good right it's just it's not it's not that big of a thing uh but unfortunately, it has been used to divide Christians. We have people in our church, so maybe you're one of them. You're not going to agree with my position. Okay, we'll, we'll wait and we'll see, right? You're right, we'll, we'll talk about it. And if I'm right, I'll be waiting for you. Uh, so, but the point is, is that it, we just can't let this become divisive because that's what the enemy wants to do. And uh, what the one thing we all know and agree on is that whenever it happens, Jesus' timing is always right. Correct? So, of the three views, I personally, I think the great preponderance of the evidence points to a pre-tribulation rapture. That it happens before. I want to give you seven reasons. I've got about 14 minutes left, so you can tell I don't have a whole lot of time. But hopefully you'll take some of the scriptures and you'll go look at them. The first thing is this. I think we know the rapture has to take place prior to Jesus' second coming because the church comes with him from heaven. So keep your finger here because we're going to come back to 1 Thessalonians. But if you got your Bibles, turn real quickly over to Revelation chapter 19. We looked at this. This is the second coming of Christ. And remember, where are they? Verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. This is where they are. You look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad. Give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride of Christ? The church. The church. 
And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Look down at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, which are, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who is he referring to? The church were following him, right? So we are coming from heaven. So to me, it's very clear that the church already has to be in heaven i would argue part of what's happened during the seven years of tribulation because we've been taken out it talks about the righteous acts of saints that we have gone through the judgment seat of christ the bema right not about whether we go to heaven or not it's about rewards it's about inheritance and and that's what is being seen here and now we return with him the second reason is is that when you just simply look at the purpose of the tribulation the purpose of the tribulation deals with israel it doesn't deal with the church so again if you keep your fingers here in first thessalonians go back to daniel we talked about this prophecy two weekends ago this is uh, Daniel's in captivity in Babylon, and he's reading in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah said that there are 70 years this is going to go on. They're coming to the end, and so Daniel's praying to God for wisdom about where is this going, what do they need to do, and this is the prophecy that he gets. In verse Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks. Now, when you think about weeks, it's not... The idea here isn't seven days. It's the idea it's a group of seven. So just like when we say a dozen, we don't mean a dozen eggs or a dozen donuts. We just mean a group of 12, right? Obviously today, the dozen eggs is worth way more than the dozen donuts, but it's not the idea of what it is. It's just, it's a group of 12. That's the idea. The 70 weeks or 70 groups of seven have been decreed, what? For your people. Was Daniel a Christian, part of the church? Answers no. Was he a Jew? Yes. And your holy city. Oh, by the way, do we as Christians here on this earth have a holy city? The answer is no. We got one coming. It's called the New Jerusalem. We don't have one today. Do the Jews have one? Yes, it's Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to see what vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So this is all about end events and bringing in that kingdom. So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So what's seven and 62? 69 right there's 70 weeks here's 69 of them you do the math we know when the decree to rebuild jerusalem happened it's in nehemiah chapter 2 the specific day it was given by artaxerxes i told you back two weeks ago and there's books on this you can do the research but they've looked and literally 483 years or 69 groups of seven years 483 years to the day from that decree by Artaxerxes till the day Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey at the triumphal entry is 483 years. It's there. Notice what he says. 
So until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again, Jerusalem, plaza, moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, and the seven weeks, by the way, the Messiah will be cut off. Well, what happens the end of the week after the triumphal entry? He dies and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, again, looking end times, will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happens in AD 70. Its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be wars and desolations are determined. And he, who is he talking about? The prince that will come will make a firm covenant with many for one week. That's the 70th week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even upon a complete destruction, one that is decreed and poured out on the one who makes desolate. So what happens? Well, there's one week left. There's one group of sevens left. That's the seven years of tribulation. What does Jesus tell us? What does John tell us in Revelation happens? At the midpoint of that seven-year period, he's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to set up an, a, an idol to himself and cause it to be worshipped. That's exactly what he's talking about. But who, who are these 70 weeks about? It's not about the church. It's about the Jews. It's about Israel. It's about God completing his plan and his promises to them. So it's not about us. Number three, here's the third reason. The Bible states that Jesus' return is imminent. By imminent, we mean there's nothing, nothing's got to happen before. It can happen at any moment. It, it's, it's ready to go. Now, is Jesus' second coming imminent? Well, no, in a sense, because it's got to at least be seven years from now, right? A, a tribulation has to happen. It's not at any moment. But Jesus' return for his church is. Let's look at some scripture. James 5. You too be patient. Strengthen your heart for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. It's not that he's coming to the door. It's just he's at the door. It's near. It's imminent. It can happen at any moment. At any moment, that door can open. Jesus will come. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're not waiting for any. We're not waiting for signs. We're not waiting for a couple other things to be ticked off we're just waiting for jesus to return because he can return today Amen. philippians 3 20 for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior jesus is coming back and for the church it is the imminency of the return of christ for us that we live every day in anticipation this could be the day this could be the day let me give you a fourth reason the rapture is called our blessed hope, not our coming nightmare. Now think about this. Seriously. Titus 2, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. But if to get to that, we had to walk through the tribulation, and oh, by the way, most of us wouldn't even make it, why would it be called our blessed hope? 
why wouldn't death just simply be our blessed hope? I mean, think about it. Their issue here is people who have known Jesus, believed in Jesus, have died. What happens to them? Why doesn't Paul just say, oh, they're at home with the Lord, and oh, by the way, it's really good because they get to miss what you may have to walk through. Wouldn't that actually bring more comfort than this idea that they got to walk through the tribulation? Oh, you wish they were here? You see, the second coming of Christ is preceded by seven years of incredible destruction. The rapture is the thing that saves us from that which is to come. It is our blessed hope. Oh, by the way, fifth reason is there's promises to the church, uniquely to the church, that actually we won't face the coming wrath. So, uh, if you're back here in First Thessalonians with me, right? I told you we're going to skip around. Just go back a couple pages to chapter 1. Look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now what's interesting, that word that's translated rescue even means, it literally means to take to oneself kind of interesting that word is chosen but people say oh no no the wrath to come is is hell well wait, wait a minute folks he's not coming to rescue us from that he's already rescued us from that right haven't we been washed in his blood our sins been taken away we've already plus the context of the book is not about heaven and hell the context of the book is about the coming judgment and you can see this if you turn over then to chapter 5 of 1st Thessalonians he says in verse 2 for yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord what's the day of the Lord that's an Old Testament picture that's the day of judgment that's coming that's the day that that you read in the Old Testament the day of the Lord when he is going to come and set up his kingdom and all the judgments on the world so that's what he's talking about but look what he says now in uh, verse 9 for God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation. Again, we talked about this. Whenever we see salvation, we think justification. The word literally means deliverance. And it can refer to justification. It can refer to sanctification. It can refer to glorification. It is destined us for wrath, but for attaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that what? Whether we awake or sleep, we will live together with him. Well, by the way, those that have already died have all obviously not going to taste this because that's not what he's, he's talking about. What he's talking about here is the rapture. He's talking about the fact that we, as the church, have been promised that we will be delivered before the wrath. That's that's what I think he promises to the church there at Philadelphia in Revelation 3. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who are dwelling on the earth. I'm coming quickly, right? How is he going to keep them? He's coming quickly. What's the, what's, what comes on to the whole world? Well, it's the rapture or the, the 
tribulation. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. There's that promise. Now, some people go, well, oh, no, no. You know, God doesn't work that way, right? God doesn't protect, and yet I would argue that actually the MO of God is is that when judgment is coming to a massive group of people, he does protect his people. I mean, think of the flood. He put Noah in the boat, right? And, and his and protected them. Think of Lot. And you could even argue, was Lot all that righteous, right? But when he's, gonna, he's going to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities, he got him out before that happened. Uh, in my Bible reading, I'm in that time when God starts sending plagues upon Egypt. Isn't it interesting that when you get to the fly plague and from then on, God puts a bubble around his people. There's protection. And this is the one I actually really wish I had time for. Um, but it's the beautiful picture of the wedding tradition. So when Jesus came here on earth, during that time, uh, this is how weddings and marriages took place. So the prospective groom would leave his father's house, and whether it was in the same city or another city, would go to the home of the prospective bride, would have a conversation with her father, make a, a negotiation as to the price of the dowry, would then pay the dowry, they would actually come into a covenant relationship together. Uh, think Mary and Joseph, but they were betrothed, but they weren't living together yet, right? They had not consummated. This is what was going on. Often that betrothal was actually celebrated by the drinking of the wine by the bride and groom from the same cup. After that had all taken place, now the groom would go back home with the promise to return. Didn't know when. Typically in Jesus' day, what they tell us was it was about 12 months. And what the bride was to do during that 12 months, even though she's technically married, though they haven't consummated the marriage, hasn't gone to live, she was to get her bridal party together. She was to uh, get all those who would be invited. She was to get her stuff ready. And then the groom was going to go back home and was going to prepare a place to bring his bride to, to live with her, right, in his father's house. And so when it finally he was done and he was ready, unbeknownst to the bride, he would show, and this became the big festival part of it, right? Because in fact, by the time of Jesus, they typically always did this at night with torches, and they would leave their city, they leave their side of town, and they would start heading towards the bride's house with the shouts, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. And of course, they're all scurrying, and she would get ready, and he would show up with his groomsmen, and then the enlarged party, now her and all her gals and her family would get together, and they would start heading back to, to, to his house for the, for the ceremony. Also at that time, the, the wedding feast from his home would all come together. So by the time they got back there, there was going to be this big festival. But what was interesting, when they got back, the bride and the groom actually didn't stay with the guests. They went into the bridal chamber, and they consummated the marriage. And then for seven days, the bride would not come out. This was their time together. Big party 
taking place. But at the end of the seven days, the bride then would come out without her veil. Everybody would know who the bride is, and they would have this big marriage supper. What, what does it tell us in Revelation 19? Behold, the marriage supper, the lamb is ready. It, it's, it's that perfect picture. And so, folk, I think the preponderance of the evidence is just clear that Jesus is going to return. He's going to take his bride out before this happens. So let's just finish this up with some key points. First of all, there are no signs to the rapture. It could happen today. Before I get to preach this one more time, right? We could, we could be up, and that would be fine with me, right? Jesus could return. All we know is this is going to happen. Now, Again, kind of interesting. It talks about how we will be changed in a moment of a twinkling of an eye. It doesn't necessarily say Jesus' return at the rapture will be that slow. It just says our change will be that slow. You kind of wonder at points um, if for the ones he loves, if maybe it will be as slow as the sunrise on the horizon of seeing Jesus comes and as he sweeps up those across the world and those that are caught up and a glorious moment for those of us that know him and then when he gets here man we are changed and we are caught up to be with him with those that have gone on before but there's no signs it could happen today it could happen before tomorrow it can happen in a hundred years we don't know but there are no signs there's nothing else that has to happen all i would say is if you remember when we looked at the tribulation and all the things that really needed to be put in place before that, those things have happened. Do you remember when you, you know, it's what, end of September, October, you walk into Sam's or Costco, and they got all this Christmas stuff up, and you're kind of going, what? Well, you know, it's like, well, you know, it's a sign Christmas is coming. But it also reminds us that even quicker, Thanksgiving is going to be here. Because they don't put stuff out for Thanksgiving, right? Well, we can see the events getting really set up for the tribulation and the return of Christ. There's nothing that's got to be done. And it's even closer. Secondly, at the rapture, our salvation is going to be complete. You say, what do you mean complete? Well, there's part of me that has been redeemed. My soul and spirit have been made new. This body hasn't. And that'll either happen at death or that happens at the rapture. And all of a sudden we get this body that never will know sin, will never know sickness and disease, and it's going to be complete. But I want to take you back, and I just want to finish. If you're still there in 1 Thessalonians, I know we've jumped around. But it's verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's the key. The rapture is only for those who believe in Jesus. The rapture is only for those who have heard the gospel message that he came and died and was raised and had put their trust in that and that alone. Only those will know the joy of the rapture. I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm not sure all this is true, so if the rapture takes place, then I'll believe. Mm. All right, well, if you want to go through the tribulation, hats off to you, right? But it's even, I think, more serious than that. And, I, and again, I'm out of time. I've gone over. But there's a scripture in 2 Thessalonians 3 because Paul comes back to the subject. They had a lot of interest in this end time stuff. 
And Paul talks about the coming of the, the Antichrist, the man of sin. And, but he says something there that to me is fascinating. He says that uh, God will send a delusion that they'll believe a lie because they did not accept the truth. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Today's the day of salvation. I'm not sure if you know the truth in the gospel and the rapture takes place that any time after that you'll want to put your faith in Jesus. Because sin and lawlessness will be happening at such a thing that I think it'll delude your heart. Today's the day of salvation.